Welcome to the podcast of data and analytic in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Ten, and thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the analytics show. I'm your host, Eric Nguyen. In this episode, analytics catalysts for change beyond the math, dashboard, and report. We have Ms. Mei Wai Wong, founder and CEO of APEC Global Advisory from Singapore. Mei Wai has built expertise and reputation in marketing and business change management through her incredible journey across ASEAN country, China, Hong Kong, throughout her works in marketing and change management across multiple industries from personal care, food and beverage, to luxury goods, jewelry and banking. Since 2018, Mei Wai has established APAC Global Advisory with the purpose building legacy through change. Her unique vision to change, growth and legacy is translated into three service offerings, change architect, change marketing and change services. We have a great show for you today, analytics through the eye of a business leader, an expert in human aspect of change, winning the heart and mind of people and a sweet spot of career progression in analytics. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, Mei Wai. How are you? Hi, Eric. How are you? How is it in Australia? I'm here in Singapore this evening, and it's uh, great. Everything is looking quite peaceful here. (laughs) Excellent. Good to hear. Thank you. In Australia, we uh, slowly get back to the new normal. The vaccination program will kick off in the next few, few weeks to the general public. And yeah, once again, thank you very much for uh, joining us today for the episode of Analytics, a catalyst for change beyond the math, dashboard and report. It's my pleasure, Eric. Well, Maywai, before we start the conversation, would you mind to share with me again your career, your journey, so that the audience can understand what perspective you bring here today? Sure, Eric. Well, I would say that I have an evolving career journey and reflecting back on this, I realize it has links to my passion and purpose through multiple learning journeys. So at this point, I am APEC Global Advisory's founder, CEO and chief change catalyst. So while I'm currently an industry change leader and entrepreneur, who founded the award-winning boutique end-to-end change management consulting. In fact, I had spent more than two decades as a marketing and business leader, having held senior management positions in multinational corporations responsible for change marketing and business transformation in Asia-Pacific and globally. Some industries include fast-moving consumer goods, food and beverage, retail, and subsequently with consultancy, hospitality, property, banking, electrical, lighting, and IT industry. So why did I talk about my journey? 
see, the journey has taken me all over the world, having spent years in Hong Kong, China, and even Vietnam, including overseeing global markets from a custodianship and leadership of iconic brands for global, regional, and local corporates in the diverse categories. So some of the companies included like Unilever, Citibank, Fraser and Neve, and family businesses like Heineken and Aspil. So in my role as Chief Marketing Officer or Business Directors, I lead the market not just from a functional perspective, but have been involved in rejuvenation of brands, integration of brands for mergers and acquisitions, stewardship of global brands in leadership, challenger and or to be sold positions. The other aspect, obviously, in my journey that I wanted to share was the purpose. Having worked with large family businesses globally, I have been journeying to fulfill the purpose of building legacy through change, leveraging on multiple strategic planning approaches and my belief to embed holistic and sustainable change through talent and people management beyond the technical aspect of obviously digitalization, branding, etc. And this whole area of change management is extremely interesting with the lens of psychodynamics perspective, which we apply at this point. So that's just to give you a picture of the journey I've taken, Eric. Wow, excellent. Thank you, Maywai. I must say that your journey is definitely uh, very, very interesting for a lot of uh, audience, at least for me. I can definitely say that because you, you basically you work around the whole life cycle of any business operation, regardless it is if it is in uh, manufacturing to services to probably like financial services, more specialized like banking. So, but you keep referring to uh, your base, like your core as a marketer. Could you explain to me and the audience, what is marketing? Yes, sure, Eric. I mean, as you know, marketing is all about the action or business of promoting and selling products or services. And it includes beyond market research, advertising, even exciting areas like sponsorship and much of what many people focus on today, digital, which is critical. And the backbone of it is the process of understanding your customers and building and maintaining relationships with them. Because today, essentially the topic of the discussion around analytics, one has to realize that the strongest link still between marketing and analytics is going to be around what it can deliver to reach the consumer, engage the consumer, get to the consumer's heart and minds. And this can be done through really being able to crunch the analytics and the data as well as supplementing it by insights of the consumers through face-to-face -face understanding. And the reason why I've supplemented it with change is adding a layer of that psychodynamic deeper lens that becomes extremely powerful 
because you're looking beyond just the surface. Excellent. I'm really impressed with a couple of key points there, especially around the consumer, not just engagement via multiple channel or multiple kind of like interaction or promotion, but it is actually, you mentioned the ultimate goal is, is about heart and mind of the, the consumer. So it would be more than just a short-term transactional relationship. It is about something long-lasting. Am I right to say so? Yes, absolutely. And this is the reason, Eric, why when I hung up my corporate cloak and set up my consultancy business, it had the backbone of what we call brand because that's a lot more long-term, not just marketing activation, but looking at it from a brand. So for instance, long-term considerations of the brand has many different approaches, many different touch points, which today in the new world sometimes is neglected. But luckily for us, we saw that in the pandemic, many people took the opportunities to go back and build or tidied up their brand so that they will be ready when it reopened and it certainly helped. I see, I see. Thanks for the sharing. As we are talking about marketing, may I follow up with a question around, am I right in, in marketing? You work with numbers, charge and report, as well as a lot of uh, interview, isn't it? So how do you bring them to life? How do you bring those huge amount of details, information, and how do you bring it to life to your customer and then to the consumer? Can you briefly tell me and the audience about the journey, how those numbers, as we now we call it as a business analytics or data analytics, we think in the way of the software run in big data, but we, I think it is still essential to learn from a practitioner like you, the, the traditional the, or the conventional way. Thank you, Eric, for saying that <laughs> traditional way. Actually, the new way has a lot more data also, in fact. But just to share with you, as you know, when you correctly mentioned, there's a clutter of data, whether it is in marketing or consultancy. Actually, the insight is before you even get to your customer, you have to sort out the internal customer, meaning the management, the leadership, the board, being able to navigate that simply so that they understand what the actions are and you ensure you get alignment to move everything forward. So we say that if they are the pilots of the airplane, you have to give clear dashboard, very simple one that can signal to the management and then the actions are all clearly labeled and tracked. So that is absolutely critical because when you go into say, okay, you make a decision on a multi-million dollar sponsorship, right? In such a case, you've got to be tracking before and after and during at each stage to make sure that not only are we looking at data and ROI, we are looking at the equity of the brand the affinity of the brand, and most important, many people miss out, okay? 
in terms of investing beyond the sponsorship amount, which you have to put at least, in my case, I feel three times the amount you spend in the sponsorship to leverage it to get the sales, that has to be tracked very carefully. So you can imagine on a global scale how challenging and demanding that would be. And having been in a situation where I've signed up for these, I've proposed these, I've also been in a situation where I've taken legacy sponsorships or legacy marketing programs and stopped them or recommend to the board to stop them. And that's what it's all about and how we do this. It's about data. It's about understanding whether it's working, to put it simply. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, you do. And actually, it, it is quite exciting to hear you briefly mentioned about uh, sponsorship. I think most of the audience, they must watch, like say, event, like sport, like music with sponsorship. And all we see as an audience or the consumer, we just see the logo, we see the brand everywhere. We will basically have some like the follow-up kind of like promotion out of it, but we would not expect to see that much of work behind the scene. And for us, it is the um, the invisible. You talk about something about tracking. May I use the term, you try to make the invisible visible. Would it be right? Like how, so basically you will still have to use data and work it out with a certain metric and explanation. Am I right? Or there's some sort of like one-size-fit-all formula? No, it isn't a one-size-fit-all formula. And the entire strategy behind it is also linked back to what the brands require. Take, for example, some people ask me, in those days when I was in Asia-Pacific breweries and we had the Barclays Premier League and I was negotiating for World Club, the World Cup broadcast. Have the big uh, one. <laughs> in Singapore, yes. And in Heineken, we leveraged the UEFA Champions League as well. And everybody says, hey, everything is around football. And there's always been discussion about, okay, this brand in the portfolio is in music. So this brand isn't. And as you know, in Singapore, when I was running, I had 16 beer brands, <laughs> you know? So you have to look at segments of people, the needs, the motivation. It doesn't mean I watch this, I don't watch that, and then I will drink just this. It's not modular like this. So you have to analyze all that. Be very, very clear in your strategy and how you're going to be able to leverage that sponsorship before you sign that on. And you have to make sure that it is trackable. Everything is trackable and there's data behind that, right? So, I mean, I don't mind even sharing, you know, we used to have this prior to me, before my time, there used to be a Tiger Cup. <laughs> I still remember that. I still remember. Yes, and yes. I think you remember the last Tiger Cup probably because in Vietnam was amazing that ran and then, you know, the finale and I was part of that. But the sad thing was while I was doing that, I did propose to the leadership team that I would measure it. And if it does not have the right payback, we should stop it because it costs a lot for the brand, which can be redeployed, you see. So... At the end of it, it's not just what the consumer sees in brand building, right? And marketing, it's going to be the results. And the results have to be trackable. 
So to be trackable, it has to be linked to data, to the feedback, back to all the performance and the ROI. Excellent. This is really exciting to hear from you because I must say the whole marketing activity, I would say majority of um, us won't have um, the exposure. So we we don't have the appreciation <laughs> to the hard work. But like hearing what you say here, this, um, I, I can see a lot of decision to be made, isn't it? So, um, yeah. One point earlier, you did mention something about um, nowadays marketing. We leverage digital channel as the um, primary. They become like the primary, the go-to channel with a lot of data generated. Do you think that, um, could you share with us, how is it like in Singapore after COVID, post-COVID? Is the economy back to normal? And do they move into what they call um, digital economy much more? What is it like in, in Singapore right now? Well, I mean, first of all, I'll answer the first part of your question about after the pandemic, are we moving into the digital economy? I would say that the pandemic in many cases was like a burning platform for the change to take place in various businesses that felt that digital was important, meaning everybody knew it was important, okay? But there was time. When we were in the lockdown, that's when many actually then started to contact me, even some from emerging market. And they say, look, we got to expedite this area that <laughs> we're talking about, right? So essentially for Singapore, our government has been extremely supportive and expediting this area, emphasizing around digitalization, very simple things like payment. I had been in the retail for the last couple of years. And I remember it was, you know, it takes off, but it's, too, it's slow, it's slow, you know? It's not like in China where it moves. I just felt we were behind at, at that point of time, right? But now with the pandemic, everybody just wake up and I think they realize it has to be done. It has to be done. And from a channel perspective, I believe I'd be very surprised if, if even the ones who were more matured in age or senior talking about the importance of digital, right? They all understand. They're all trying to learn. You know? Can so, you give me one example? It is so exciting. Can you give me one example? I'll, I'll share the example from, from Australia for you with you. <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll give you a personal example of my conversation with an elderly uncle recently. And he was asking many questions about gaming. Okay, <laughs> why gaming, right? Interesting, very so interesting. I was, I, you know, and beside me was obviously my daughter who likes to game and she's trying to explain to him and... I was listening to this conversation and then I realized that he in his 80s, 90s, just could not understand what in the world has gaming even changed now where it's streaming about people having picnic or just groups of people eating and lots of people coming in on Twitch and different platforms and actually giving funds and it's become a social community on Discord, etc. 
And then I explained to him about when you were young, I guess a treat for you would be go to the cinema and all that. Now, if they are locked down and they want to engage and they don't want to just watch that, it's become all like the entertainment at home is so critical. It's not something that is wholesome or unwholesome or wrong or right. It is part of the life now. And many of them, many of the corporates actually talk to me about this area because they always say, oh, I noticed my son is spending too much time gaming and they think the whole concept was about just playing computer games. But it isn't. It's shifted completely. It's a huge market, even for marketing channels in China, in US, etc. So it is like what you say, it is gaming. In another word, it's shifting from the old days where people locked up, locked in and play. Now it is more than that. It is like a community, isn't it? Where you open the windows and then all of your neighbor can basically participate from afar. Yes, indeed, indeed. And people struggle to understand that. It's like they try to, they basically, they couldn't get beyond the meaning of the word, isn't it? The word now has a new meaning, extended meaning. But some people, okay, so that's the like generational gap. But they are so curious and so many corporates or so companies like asking about how to reach a new community. They aren't. You know, the community dislikes in the face advertising that used to be done traditionally. Traditionally, advertising was, wow, in the face, you say what you are and, and all that. And now with the Generation Z, they are looking much more into subtlety and deeper meaning, but not, oh, let me flash a logo. <laughs> the bigger the logo, the better. Let me have a jingle, <laughs> you know. It's not, it's different. It's different now. And, and this has come about because of the whole digital landscape shifting. And it's shifted even through the pandemic. Yeah, I agree with you totally, especially around the, um, since you mentioned the great example of gaming, it become some sort of like community where you have more than just playing game in the gaming world. I think it is in a way to come to one of the questions I have here for you. It is about the emerging of algorithm and AI marketing in digital channel. So in another word, think about um, Amazon, think about um, Google or Facebook. Whenever we access those applications, we see, like say, targeted ads or content that will basically based on our interaction will dynamically. It is very subtle. And I think in a way it's quite customized. What do you see out of it? Like say, if, if as a marketer, when you see you have algorithm and you, you might gather tons of data, how would you make use of it? Would it be something like, again, it is about, like say, uh, the brute force of data and then you just have some uh, very like straightforward approach? to target the audience or it would be something else like say if it is something you mm. do. yeah I think I understand where you're coming from for me I've always in any case right that I'm looking at I always go back to asking the clients about the digital strategy making sure they have that rather than just zooming in on 
AI or any of what we call this many, many different magical terms, right, in digital, because fundamentally, it is what can help their business. The objective has to link back to their business objective. And then from there, be able to translate into what is required, which digital can bring, okay? So based on your question, if you're talking about, say, media planning or media related, I think that's what you're, you're asking, in terms of reaching out, targeting, etc. Yes, indeed, this is an area that I'm exploring on. I've been working with my clients and the R&D uh, side of new ventures looking into this area and still testing and learning that because the machine learning is critical, right? So you have to provide that. But for there are companies and, you know, but I don't believe in just taking case studies and people saying it's worked. For me, the reason why I build that reputation in what I do is because I've got to make sure that I've actually seen it and it works for my clients before I would recommend to them. So I'll be very open. We are testing and learning. We see some results. But if you ask me quantum results on AI in this area still need to be proven in my view. I see. I see. Yeah. I think that is the general um, response from um I would say practitioner in um, industry, like say sales, like yourself and change and marketing and uh, or David, the other uh, guest that I interviewed, he or he was in, he is in uh, workforce uh, management. I think those practitioners, they do have the same perspective around the new exciting wave of uh, technology powered by AI, machine learning and vast amount of data, real-time data. They do have the love and open for those technologies to come and, and stay. But for them, it is all about, it is more than about what you see. It is about what you do not see, but you know it is around and you you make assumption, you make a um, certain boundary. Absolutely, yes. I think we're on the same page, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, but on the other hand, for sure, for, like say, in terms of technology, we always love to see new things. Yeah, we love to embrace, we very open to embrace any new form of technology and definitely have to explore at the early stage and continue to track it closely, yeah, for any innovation and shifts. Because there will be a breakthrough one day, definitely. <laughs> and I think this in terms of, like say, back to the topic of today around um, catalyst for change. I think definitely data, it is something that nowadays we, we know that we cannot ignore or we cannot downplay the importance of it. I think we are, everyone is now still in the shift to be more into that space. That is my observation. We, we start looking at data, not just from the, in the form of, like say, a charge, the graph, the trend, but uh, we start to slowly ask about assumption and the, um, the limitation or even the meaning of data. 
Absolutely. And in fact, I mean, although I know we are here talking about marketing and change today, it was very interesting to see the research findings that many CEOs want to, their human resource leads to be very on top of data. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. So indeed, it's not about recruitment and just strategy anymore, but hey, you got to be knowing about data <laughs> and change management as well. So it's this whole thing is impacting many different roles across functions. I see. I see. It is very exciting to hear about it because from my um, understanding data, people talk about data literature, data understanding, but probably it was more from the technical perspective rather than the business context. I think now the shift is more into that business context where executives are expected to have the ability to use the tool to think about business context of data and have action and result to be trackable. Yes, absolutely. From a business perspective, and even for me, heading up a consulting practice, I view that with very high regard, data and analytics. It's critical. I see, I see. Now, let's just move on a little bit um, to change. You spend so much effort to bring change into uh, another level with your uh, new business, especially you earlier, you did mention something about family business sector, where you have a lot of time with a lot of major brands, especially Heineken. For me personally, I was surprised. <laughs> Heineken is still a family business. Yes, indeed. So let me just start with one quick question. How would change really happen at an organization level, like say, especially for, let's say, family business? How does change come into play? Well, that's a very interesting question and a good question as well, Eric. And obviously, it would be quite complex to explain that. But let me try. As you know, many people already talk about how change is very complicated. And many people are exposed to that due to the pandemic. Okay, Change is extremely complicated in businesses. But when you add the word family business, that in fact becomes even more complicated because as we know, business is all about heart, efficiency, performance. It's all about these aspects, right? And when you put in family, family all connotes love, nurturing, care, even sharing is very different in business and family. And when you have family in the board of director, management, or in the company itself working, there are many different dynamics. So a few key things I would like to share with you is, so far from my own experience where change has been successful for family business, firstly, whether it's external or family managers, okay, or leadership, they have to buy in to who the change consultant is. Why do we look at change consultancies? Because it's an external force. Imagine if you're running a change in a family business and you ask one of the internal 
managers or the family to lead it, there's many biases in there. So even when somebody in the family appoints somebody external, there will be differing views. So everybody has to buy in. If not, it's not going to work. And the second thing, which is what I talk to you about, my passion, my purpose, and in fact, it's my company vision. It's this whole thing around building legacy through change. It's really interesting because family, imagine a family business with 120 years legacy, okay? They think, wow, we were the leader, you know, we were top in this business. Great-grandfather used to do it like that. Right, and we want to continue to remain like that. So, what what do they believe? You can't change this. Be careful, you can't touch that. Be careful, you can't do that. But the interesting thing is that if you want to build legacy, in many cases, it has to be through careful, well thought out change, understanding all these dynamics and psychodynamics behind the family business because you're not going to touch things that are taboo and critical for the family. But those that they are open to, you have to be able to drive that change through for them to be able to continue. And it was really interesting, Eric, when I was doing research in this area, I found that in all these years talking about family business, Everybody focuses on succession planning, which, of course, is an area I also do, including taking care of next generation to groom them, etc. But the study around legacy and the forgotten part is also the brand. Sometimes for 120 years, your brand is there. And how is it integrated through the legacy? So these are some areas just to touch on because of the timing. But of course, as you know, it's all about the sustainable change. And at the end of it, it's all down to people. Today, you see a lot going on on family business relating to digitalization. But family businesses, they care about their people too. And many of them have had their people for many years. So that part has to be managed with care. I see. In a way, it is. I. Uh, I think you opened a very, very interesting. I'm sure you opened a very interesting conversation to um, any leaders when they can see the contrast about legacy and change. Legacy, in a way, I think it is feel like it is quite shiny, but also it's quite fragile. You look from afar, don't touch. And then change is like something unstoppable. It's like a storm. So you you wouldn't want, or normally, you wouldn't want to bring the two together, right? You try to keep it afar. The legacy will stay in, in place where it is like beautiful weather or even in a container <laughs> where you locked it up. Indeed, I've sparked many conversations around legacy. And people are very frank about it and you'll be surprised. With such big businesses, they are like, hey, you know, we haven't thought about that, but we certainly want a legacy. (laughs) But how is it going to take place? What do we have to change beyond ensuring that the next generation can and want to take over the business? I see. And by the way, I think that the philosophy, it is quite a catchy a catchy place. Well done. <laughs> Your legacy. Oh, thank today. you. The vision, you mean? Yes. <laughs> yes, I like that tagline. That it, it basically opened up the conversation rather than 
say that okay, it is what it is. It sparked debate. It sparked the the feeling, the reflection. Excellent. May why? Since you talk about build a legacy through change, this may be a side note, but um, I noticed that you work for one of the greatest family business on earth. It is Heineken. And my question for you, it is about why and how people basically in beverage, especially beer brand, especially from Europe, how did they do it? How did they manage the brand? It's literally the brand to be like over 100 years, even like two, three, four hundred. I think even a taste of beer with um, about over 500 years old. What's special about that line of business that kind of like has the capability to survive and thrive over and over again? Very interesting question. I think actually maybe let's look at it beyond Heineken. There are also many businesses out there that have gone for decades and have survived even sometimes through the war and in conglomerates as well, to your surprise, I'm sure, across many categories, not just one category. And I fundamentally see that there are a number of drivers that potentially give rise to such success. In the Asian terms, of course, we will say it's by design, but it is also by opportunity and by luck, right? Take, for example, when I say by design, right? In many of the cases, you will see that the strong foundations of the founder and the values of that founder is passed down through the generations. And it is not just monetary, you know. It is very charming. Very often, it could be something like passion for quality, or serving the community, and then they started growing agriculture. It could be a passion for, like uh, in Lego's case, for example, linking back to the whole idea of play and the kids. And there is always it's always rooted in, without realizing something that the founder believes in, and somehow it is able to be passed down through the generations, either through their own family generation or gradually transiting to a larger proportion of external manager, but you still have, or external leadership, but you still have the magic of what that founder believes and you retain that. And that becomes like a dream vision that, The whole company is marketed on that foundation and continues through the legacy. The second one is people. Very often, you see how there will be key, bold and courageous people beyond just what the founder put in, the next generations who can replicate. For example, I have worked on like three, four, five generation businesses. And there are some amazing ones that each one, the son, the elder son can take over. Now, this is not the case for all. Sometimes you will have the daughters or you will need to pull in external 
businesses to come in and a mixture of investors on the board. But they are able to steer through very powerful and bold leadership. And they are built on the foundation already of continually improving in terms of shifting through generations, expanding global scalability, key things around economies of scales, partnerships, ability to tie partnerships. In those days for Heineken, it was very much with Mr. Fraser and Mr. Heineken come together to put together a joint venture, right? In the early days before it split up. Yeah. So these are the stories I can share or at least just a few quick snippets of the patterns or some patterns I see in the long-standing family businesses. Yeah. Wow. I'm sure the um, not just myself, but the audience, they would enjoy this kind of like insight from you, May Wai. Thank you very much. You did mention something earlier also about the organization now. There's a need for use data, acquire the skill to basically make a more like say, evidence-based decision. Do you think the term data-driven organization, how far away we are from now to to that kind of like term data driven where we basically have a much more informed decision and yeah basically we have like um stay away from bias yeah but i think this term data driven organization has been something that i've been hearing for a number of years already essentially organizations have been much more aware of the need to leverage on big data and that they are sitting on huge amount of data and how to kind of translate them, some of them, or how to even monetize that. So that's actually been ongoing. So for me, it's just a term that's been there. I see, I see. If it is from, let's say, a pragmatic perspective, Nowadays, organization, we still deal with a challenge and problem around, let's say, efficiency, around understanding exactly the each division, each team or group, or even down to individual, our performance, our capabilities, as well as, let's say, our service, our revenue. Do you see, like, what is the next stage for organization if they want to change? What they would need to do with numbers and data? Okay, I think I have two points to say here. One is that if it's about data, my point of view is that many of them are still grappling with the seamlessness and integration across cross-functions. Okay, so that is something that is still being worked on in digitalization and in organizations. So in your silo functions, it is something that the heads and the chiefs can drive. But when it comes to seamless integration, that's going to be a challenge to continue to improve the integration and seamlessness with all the change that is taking place externally. My second point would be, I don't think that is sufficient. It's in change. It's not all about technical change. You can have the best technical team, I believe, who can work on whatever technical change they want in the department, but the change will still fail. Just 
for your information, as high as 80% of digitalization can fail. And you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that they also want to be able to leverage as much data as possible in time, at the same point in time, to make transactions and decisions quickly as well as tracking, right? But in order for it to succeed, there is the human aspect, the softer aspect of change, which many people underestimate. And that's what change management comes in to help to ensure that all the change impacts are clearly measured and delivered, what gaps there are when you want to roll out any stepping up beyond training into coaching, etc. So there's a lot of all that. And as my, I mentioned earlier on about understanding the whole psychodynamics of fear for change, and to manage that, that is absolutely critical for any change to take place beyond just the data. Beyond not just the data. Excellent. I think that is the essential part to, um, I would say, the last question of this um, very interesting episode, May Why? I would like to ask about what if I am an analytics uh, specialist and I want to progress in my career path, what should I do? What could I do to look beyond my day-to-day job with like technical work, with a dashboard report and a data model? What could I do to bring much more meaningful impact to the organization? What skills should I acquire and who should I talk to? Yeah, it's a really good question because you'll be surprised Over the last month alone, I've spoken to at least three people who wanted to do their master's in data and analytics in some of the top universities. And they would talk to me and they ask me about it and the trends as well. And then I also reflected on the situation with myself as well, which I can share with you. And essentially, it's the same line of thinking, which is that, yes, indeed, Okay, if you want to pursue a career where and many of them don't just want to be a data specialist, they want to be leaders of companies, right? <laughs> and they wonder whether through data it, it can reach. How do you navigate to successfully get there? And I would say that certainly if this is your passion and you are really good at all the econometrics and all the data crunching, etc., and even strong in digitalization, that would be perfect at this point in time. However, as I mentioned before, if you recall at the earlier part of the interview, I mentioned that even in human resource, <laughs> now they are saying after the pandemic that there are many desires for CEOs to look for human resource leads who can understand and make the assumptions and crunch data to help the people better, right? The thing I have found, which is a sweet spot, okay, is the softer side of things to mix with the hard side. And that also explains why I personally, I'm not sure if you know, Eric, I took on my third master's degree in executive master's of change with INSEAD Business School. Because having been in always technical part and looking at the numbers, etc., right? 
what I realized was the more the world becomes like that, the more there will be demand for the need to understand the people on a deeper level and be able to integrate that in the organization. Okay, so imagine if you can look at data, etc., and you also have at least awareness around the softer side, it certainly is going to put and allow you to be a lot more of a balanced person to move into a leadership position that will be more sustainable moving forward. So that's my advice. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, Maywa. I love how you put it down here with some very simple word. But it's very memorable. I think that's critical nowadays. <laughs> it is Thank like you. Thank you, <laughs> because you mentioned, I think the most critical word is, is about the demand, the demand for people who can understand the heart of uh, people, how they think, how they react, what motivates them beyond just numbers, beyond just data. It is more like you have to, um, if you are able to grasp the business context, and then also the human aspect around those contacts, those facts and insight, and you connect the dot, it is the sweet spot. Yes. In fact, beyond that, Professor Roger Lehman uses this word, which I love. It's called night vision, meaning as leaders, we can navigate in the dark. So we have to, in change management, go into any business, any category, any industry, and you have to observe what is happening because change isn't just about the technical side and the data, the numbers, the maths. It's also going to be successful with the understanding of what's behind all the dynamics that's happening in the organization. That one's very interesting. It's night vision. Wow, I really like that. Thank you very much for sharing with me. I'll make sure that I'll, um, yeah, I'll start thinking more about it. <laughs> you are right, because if we're all in a daytime vision and we do the same thing, then in terms of progress, it is extremely hard to break away from the crowd, isn't it? Unless you start to see it from not just perspective, but from condition. It's just like you you learn more in a way, be more humble and actually more curious. Wow. Yes. I think the conversation was just so exciting and um, I really liked it. Thank you, Maywai, for your time once again. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure speaking to you from Singapore. Thank you, Maywai. Hope we can have another chance to um, talk more about those topics. Thank you. Bye-bye.